Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Tonight on Fast, here come the regulators, Treasury officials demanding answers as the Reddit rebellion fuels wild market swings. So what needs to be done? What should be done? What can be done? Wall Street's former top regulator, Jay Clayton, will join us straight ahead. Plus, we are tracking the after-hours action in Qualcomm and PayPal. Both stocks on the move after reporting results. Their calls are underway. We'll bring you the headlines. And later, a $7 billion, uh, $7 billion deal lighting up the cannabis space. How to trade it? Straight ahead. But we start off with game stopped or game on. Check out today's price action. Wall Street's hottest stock, maybe once hottest stock. GameStop gaining more than 2%. <laughs> While other heavily shorted names like Koss, AMC, and BlackBerry also posted gains, Robinhood easing some trading restrictions today, allowing users to buy fractional shares in GameStop and AMC. But these stocks are still down big for the week. So what is the current state of this Reddit rebellion that has captured Wall Street's attention? Let's bring in Bob Pisani. So, Bob, we got a couple of big questions for you. Number one here, can we actually say that the rebellion is over based on what we've seen over the past couple of days when we know that restrictions have still been in place on trading the stock? I think we found, a, a, I don't think the mania is over, but it's found a level, and I think it's subsided. I mean, just look at the, the volatility today. It was remarkably low. And I, I know you mentioned restrictions, but what restrictions? I mean, I, there's some on Robinhood, but it all, traded almost 50 million shares. I mean, the, a heck of a lot of people are trading Robinhood stock. It's not a bunch of Russians sitting out there. So th- there's very few restrictions out there, and I don't think that's a big uh, inhibition for the stock right now. Has short interest come down enough to the point where we say that short squeeze is over? We know that it's dropped significantly over the past week or so, down by more than 50 percent right. or something like that, but it's still pretty high. It's a, it's a moving target. I see different numbers every day, mm-hmm. and it's actually fairly difficult to get a real accurate number. Clearly, we can say it's way down. Now, here's my bet. I bet you you'll see new shorts on this that will start coming in. I wouldn't be surprised if we got a level at 50 percent and it stayed there for a long time because a lot of people still feel even at $90, this thing is, is ridiculously overpriced. There were plenty of people who had $10 and below numbers on this you know, just a few months ago. So it's a moving target, but I wouldn't be surprised if there were new shorts coming in in the weeks ahead. All right, last question we have for you tonight, Bob. Regulation, where would it come from? Who would be the target? Yeah, Yellen's really being smart here. She's being a leader. She's going to channel all this energy in. She just knows what she's doing. I'll tell you what the concern the street has is this could morph into some kind of broader investigation. So FINRA has always, and they're the regulators of the brokers, FINRA has already said, we're looking at gamification of trading. That's a hornet's nest because immediately you can start saying, is the site you have suitable for your investors? Do you have uh, balloons going off when people make a trade? Do you have hot trades of the day at the top? Would this induce people who would not normally make these trades to do that and engage in behavior that is not suitable for their type of investing? That's a real hornet's nest, Melissa. 
Now, I know the SEC is looking at market manipulation. That's a different story. I think that's going to be a very tough case to prove. I'm not sure that what happened here with Reddit confirms, confines with the normal uh, indications of some kind of pump and dump operation. I think they're going to have a hard time proving that particular one. Melissa. Yeah. Bob, thank you. Bob Pisani. So that brings us to the question we started this whole show off with, and that is game stopped or game on. What is the state of the rebellion right now? Guy, what's what's your two cents on this? It's not going away. Maybe it's maybe it's slowed down, but the world's changed. And it's interesting that Bob mentioned the gamification of Wall Street, because that's a term we used, I think, seven or eight months ago uh, when we had Dave Portnoy on the show talking about how in the absence of sports, people were finding the stock market and it was effectively the gamification of trading, investing, whatever term you want to use. So I think, listen, if things had lasted a week, a uh, month, maybe I'd say it's going to go back to the norm. This has now lasted over seven or eight months. Obviously, it's been sort of crescendoed over the last week and a half, two weeks. But the market has fundamentally changed, and you can't put that genie back in the bottle. And I actually think it's probably a good thing in a lot of ways. Um, pe- more people are finding the market. I said that eight months ago. I'll say mm-hmm. it now. Unfortunately, there were people that learned this the hard way, but getting people um, geared up for the market, excited about the market, is not necessarily a bad thing. I think Dave Portnoy started it, and who knows who's behind this GameStop thing. Yeah, and, you know, when you build a business, you want people to be, quote-unquote, addicted to your product, and that's exactly what Robinhood did. That's probably what the other online trading platforms did, too, Dan. I mean, that, that is what every single... Uh, social media internet site has done since the start of the internet. They want people to go back again and again and again for whatever product they are shilling, whether it be online trading or political commentary or you name it. Yeah, the irony there, though, Mel, is that if you think of all those other innovations on the web over the last 25 years, none of them were nearly as regulated as that of financial services, right? Mm -hmm. So they kind of weighed into an industry where there was already considerable um, regulation. There was already considerable rules. There was um, a lot of history as far as prosecution of of those laws and such. So to me, that's what's really changed this time. And, you know, if you're asking whether it's a rebellion, I don't really think it's a rebellion. I think it was more of a mania. And we've seen manias before. And very sadly, we know how manias end. We've been talking about it on this program for weeks, if not months in a way. But calling the top of a bubble or the prick um, of of the bubble popping is a very hard thing. The sad thing here is that I think there's going to be very few winners here. And I think a lot of the people who participated in the mania over the last few weeks in particular, who are drawn into it, are going to end up losing pretty badly. And we may not see them back in the market for a long time. And we've seen that again and again. We saw that after the internet bubble burst. We saw it after the financial crisis, and we're likely to see it here. Yeah. Tim, what do you think? Do you think that this will uh, create a generation of investors that are permanently burned? Or are these investors, have they burned, been burned so many times, time and time again, that they've sort yeah. of become inured to yeah. it? And they're like, you know what? We, we entered this game knowing we could lose everything because we saw it back in 2008. Well, this is the disenfranchised investor that that's, you know, got a new franchise. And, and, and Robinhood added three million new downloads in January. And, and you know, the stats I saw, including a great article on CNBC.com, um, is that even in the heat of Friday, you know, they, they added another 600,000 downloads. So um, you also used an interesting word. And I don't I don't think you were being uh, 
um, you know, callous or insensitive. I mean, the addiction here, I mean, you know, gambling is an addiction. It can be an addiction. Uh, the, the playing in, in the market for folks who are, are newer to this and are not investing with fundamentals. I mean, this is something that people who, who watch the stock market over the years, not just over the last couple of weeks, ha have argued, what's the difference between gambling uh, and playing in the stock market? If you don't believe fundamentals matter, um, you're gambling, as far as I'm concerned. And if you're a total momentum trader, you're gambling. What's the difference between that and, and, the, and the roulette wheel? Um, but, but I do think uh, the retail investor, which is a new generation of investors, not the people that were burned by the financial crisis per se, um, but also a wealthy group of folks that are tech savvy uh, and, and the information flow, uh, the leveling of the playing field in terms of the amount of financial analysis uh, and, and insight you can get as a retail investor is extraordinary. And I don't. So I think we've been very clear not to to talk down to these folks. In fact, to say that these are folks that are that are bright and armed with a lot of information. The question is, are they going on no fundamentals and going for a, a, a momentum approach? Or are they truly looking to be investing in companies where they understand the fundamentals? That's the part to me over the last two weeks that that I scratch my head at. And I think this is where Dan was. I, I think fundamentals ultimately do matter. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think most people on this panel would ultimately agree with that. Um, and, and to be sure, you know, we don't want to paint with a broad brush every single person who's been on this Reddit thread as being the same sort of trader. There are people who are doing analysis. The guy who started this whole thing, Roaring Kitty, has done analysis. And in fact, on yeah. Squawk Alley today, our friend, the dean of valuation, Aswath Damodaran, had actually said he, he thought the analysis done by Roaring Kitty, and I'm using his handle, of course, his name not being Roaring Kitty, um, was actually quite reasonable, up to about 50 bucks a share or $60 a share. So it's not that good work is not being done here, but there are other parts who are just sort of glomming on as well and are treating it like a casino. Um, Karen, I'm curious what your your take on this is. You've always been worried about the person who's going to lose their shirt, lose their more, the people who can't afford to lose their money, losing their money. Right. I, I am afraid of that because I've seen it before many times in different things. You just put in whatever the mania of the day is, and ultimately it ends the same with a lot of people who can't afford to lose, who do lose. But um, a lot of Redditors don't, don't really want to hear that. So... The thing, though, to me, though, you know, I look at the stock at 92, and I can't possibly come up with any, any reason for evaluation at 92, and I think pendulums always swing too far. This one obviously swung way too far to get to 500, but I think it's got a lot more room left to swing. To me, I don't think we're settling in at fair value here. This is still kind of crazy. So I think there's a lot more downside. but. The one thing that's different about this time is that there are these, you know, what I think of as sort of kamikaze investors who are, whose main goal is to screw Wall Street. And to the extent that they can do that, even if it means losing money themselves, they're willing to do it. So I don't know how, how, how deep those pockets are, mm -hmm. how many of them there are. But I don't know. They feel like the job is done yet. Yeah. Doesn't how, seem to be. How strong their but, holds are. And to be, but I know, think it's losing momentum. Right. They, they may be worth, they may be willing to lose every single penny that they put into that investment to that end. Um, but Gaia, I'm curious because Karen was looking at it from a fundamental perspective, saying 90, no way. But from just sort of a momentum perspective, what's your take? Because you often follow just how the stock trades, levels, et cetera. Yeah. 
I think the momentum. Listen, I, I think the momentum portion of this is over. But I have to be honest. You know, I thought the momentum portion of this was over when it traded up to one hundred twenty-five dollars a week and a half ago, and then it proceeded to go to four eighty-three. So you know, that's just me um, from my perch after thirty-five years of doing this. To me, the momentum part feels like it's over. With that said, remember, momentum works to the upside. It works equally and faster to the downside. So maybe we're about to see the momentum move. To the downside, but you, know, you said something interesting, and Karen sort of touched on it. It's hard enough to trade when you're trying to make money for yourself. You've made it five times more difficult if not only you're trying to make money for yourself, but you're trying to injure the, the man or the establishment. <laughs> Take that aspect out of it because, quite frankly, um, it's misguided in my opinion. It's, do this because you're looking to make money for you and your family, not because you're looking to make money for you and your family and hurt the establishment that you so look into rail against. Yeah, I, I think that the hedge fund industry has has viewed this and, and learned a lesson in terms of having a position that they can handle. I mean, certainly that's that's already established if, if that's any consolation to these Redditors out there. Um, Dan, you, you wanted in? You wanted to comment? Yeah, I, listen, you know, it's interesting what the, the, the dean evaluation had to say about this stock. Maybe you get it to 50. I'll just mention this. And, and they reported earnings. And, and it's a very similar story. And I know Guy likes this name. But Dick Sporting Goods reported, um, you know, the other day. It's got about the same market cap as GameStop. They make, uh, they're going to have twice as much in revenues this year. They make a lot of money where GameStop swung to a loss last year. And so there's some stocks that I get it, like, okay. And there's high short interest. There's 22% short interest in Dix. And that stock has gone from 50 to 70 in the last month and a half or so. So to me, we're not sitting here arguing about that name because I think there's some valuation support. And you can see where maybe this bricks and mortar story is changing. Mm -hmm. It was not the case in GameStop. And I think that's why this fascination with this name and then throw in some of this very targeted trading, attacking these individuals, using options to do it. They did know some stuff. Guys have been saying this about convexity yeah. and gamma squeezes and this and that. But not all of them, probably sure. a very small handful. And most of them didn't. And that's why they got burned here on the downside. All right. We got some breaking news on American Airlines. Let's get to Phil LeBeau with the details. Phil. Melissa, this is a letter that was just sent out uh, from American Airlines CEO Doug Parker, as well as the president of the airline, Robert Isom, to all the employees at the company, essentially saying that they will be issuing warn notices to 13,000, approximately 13,000 workers, telling those employees that they could be laid off starting April 1st. Remember, the current payroll support program that was authorized by Congress, it expires on March 31st, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that the airline business is in no better shape than it was in the fourth quarter. And with American flying about 45 percent fewer flights and with passenger revenue down, I think anywhere from 65 to 75 percent for the first quarter, uh, they are not expecting things to improve come April, at least not immediately. So as a result, they're going to have to right size their workforce. We saw this with United last week. We're seeing it today with Americans saying that if things don't change, they're going to have to issue uh, some layoffs come April 1st. So not a huge surprise here, Melissa. Uh, and don't be surprised if you see this from other airlines as well. They were the American United were the biggest in terms of uh, uh, furloughs and layoffs last time around. Likely will be the same this uh, if this happens again. But other airlines are also looking at their manpower right now saying, OK, if things don't improve, do we have to make some furloughs? Yeah, and we've seen, we've seen this before, of course, when the payroll uh, program threatened to expire, you know, back, Correct. back in, in the winter. 
So, yep. Okay. Same same story, just a different date. Yep. <laughs> Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau. You uh, Tim, your take on American. Well, and again, so playing some of the political uh, violin strings uh, on this, and and there's been a lot of criticism of the airline industry, and and you know frustration again from the masses about you know who gets the bailout, who deserves the bailout, uh, especially airlines that were doing a lot of buyback. Remember, um, there, there's a difference between your major airline carriers in American, United, and Delta. Uh, Delta's telling a story that's that's one of profitability by the spring, or maybe they're adjusting this, but but either way, we're talking about free cash flow, even in a lower reco- recovery trajectory. And that's where you have to really question uh, the, the multiple and, and EPS dynamics. With American, look, I, I think you still have issues that at least are, are more, remember, the, the evolution of the airline trade since COVID has been about balance sheet to recovery uh, to, you know, effectively free cash flow. And I'm not sure if that's three stages, American might still be in stage one. Um, it's certainly not a balance sheet that I want to get behind. It's a company that's had to have more dilution uh, than any of the major carriers, and it was a company that was more wounded coming into this. Mm-hmm. So um, understand who you own and don't play them all necessarily as one trade. All right. Let's get back to the Reddit rebellion. One of Silicon Valley's most successful investors warns Robinhood is using tactics designed by Facebook to lock in users. Roger McNamee is the co-founder of Elevation Partners. He was an early Facebook investor, wrote the book on the social media giant, Zucked, waking up to the Facebook catastrophe. So, uh, Roger, we obviously know where you stand on these tactics. Um, but, but what, I hate to say this, what's wrong with it? <laughs> you start a business because you want people to be addicted to your product. That's the way it goes. Well, so that's not really what I'm talking about. Okay. I think that the panel and Papasani had really, really thoughtful points to make here. What I want to focus on is the structural question for the long term. I'm less interested in what happened on GameStop than I am about the fact that we've now seen two groups that previously didn't interact, which is to say Redditors. And so think of Reddit as a place where people get together, exchange ideas. And a lot of things happened there, including the beginnings of major social movements. So MAGA really got its start in the Donald, which was a Reddit uh, place as well. And so if you think about this, what happened there was you, you put together a group of initially very serious Wall Street investors, but who wanted to bring a certain attitude to it. And the thing, you know, the, they characterized it as, as 4chan with a Bloomberg terminal. And so there was this this very aggressive thing that was going on there. But it really didn't spill over into day-to-day trading in a way that affected the market as a whole. That really took getting Robinhood to the scale it's at now with millions of active investors in this extraordinary level of gamification. So if you think of Robinhood as having taken all the friction out of investing and having played with fire throughout, where it's really skirted the rules, and it's been called out in a bunch of times and had to change some policies, but it's fundamentally gone as close to the edge as you could possibly get at a time when, let's face it, the enforcement of rules on Wall Street is lighter than it has been in a long, long time. And so when those two things came together, you get GameStop and these other things going on. And the real questions I would be asking, and I don't have answers, I just want to know what they mean. How does an online broker, which is not taking positions of things, get in a situation where it needs $3.4 billion worth of financing over a matter of a few days. Where does that come from? What kind of risk were they taking? I've been told, and I can't prove this, but I've been told that apparently they don't ask for collateral on margin trades until settlement. 
Does that, in fact, create additional risk? Are there other things in the trading deals that they allow that increase systemic risk for the market? And I look at all this, and this may all turn out to be much ado about nothing. This mm -hmm. may work out great for Robinhood. But I do think both regulators and the rest of Wall Street have to be paying attention because this thing that happened here, there's nothing to keep it from happening again. And I find it hard to believe that there will be $3.4 billion available every time something like this happens uh, to Robinhood. Amen, Roger. I mean, well said. Now I ask you this. In a world of zero commissions, obviously Robinhood isn't making money off their clients per se. So they're making money somehow. And to me, it always goes down to the follow the money. They answer to somebody. And you have to wonder who is the ultimate, who's the, who's the puppet master in all this? And why did Robinhood do something they knew would infuriate their client base that day? Understanding there might have been some capital and regulatory concerns, but there's something bigger going on here, in my opinion. Well, Guy, I think the framing of this, you're asking exactly the right question, because the, the customer for Robinhood isn't the retail investor. The customer, you know, they're the hedge funds who are buying the order flow. They're the people buying data from Robinhood. And I suspect there are other people who profit on float and other things that are going on here. But those are the customers. So this is very much like the situation at Facebook, where the people who are called users are not the customer. They're not even the product. They're actually more like the fuel. And I think to some degree, the same thing is true at Robinhood. And to Melissa's earlier point, you know, we have to judge as a society, is that okay or not okay? And I think with Janet Yellen looking at this, this will be a question they ask. To what degree do you have a responsibility if you're going to gamify something like stock trading to also provide guardrails to ensure that people don't get overextended? They don't lose their life savings, or at least if they're going to take those kind of risks, that they've been prepared. You know, this is a little bit like if you're in Manhattan, handing the keys to a racing car to somebody and saying, we need you to drive the length of Manhattan, but you've never driven a car before, you don't have a license, you have no idea how to drive this car, but still we need you to take it the length of Manhattan. I mean, a lot of things are going to go wrong, and I think that's what the risk is here. And we may have dodged a bullet on this one, but I worry that there will be others. Roger, I'm going to ask you one last question, um, you know, at the ire of, of my producers at this point. But l let's say there was nobody on the island of Manhattan and it was OK if you, you know, in, in the da in the buildings could not be damaged. And the person who took the key said, I'm willing to die. I'm willing to get injured. That's my risk. But I want to take that sports car and I want to zip it through Manhattan. Isn't it there? Right. Yep. Well, it, it, right, but you're creating something that doesn't bear to this thing. So, Melissa, I think in that circumstance, you could make an argument that that's okay. But that is not what we have here. We're talking about a stock market where lots of people are investing. I had a, a friend who's a hedge fund manager who owned none of the stocks, but lost a huge amount of money over two days because the people who did own those stocks liquidated stocks he owned in order to uh, cover their okay. money. And so, you know, there, there are... I look at this and I go, that, that situation you're describing isn't actually what happened here. And again, I'm not making a judgment call here. I'm simply pointing out that these are things that are going to happen again. Sure. And where the regulators, sure. I think, should at least be weighing in. And frankly, I love this panel discussion and I love your points because these are all right on. And these are the voices that need to be heard. And we just need to draw a judgment about, in our society, where do we want to draw these lines? Right. Roger, it's always great to get your insights. We really appreciate it. I hope to see you soon. 
My pleasure. Roger McNamee, Elevation Partners. And I think that's important, this notion of the deleveraging that had to happen in order to cover positions, Karen. And, and maybe maybe that's why we saw a big rally in yesterday's session. I mean, there are ripple effects for people who say that GameStop was a corner of this market. It was a corner of the market. But the ripple effects of this, there were ripple effects and they could be felt across the market. Yeah. There were ripple effects, absolutely. And if you look at the way Apple and Microsoft traded after their earnings, right, to me, those were definitely affected by this. But look, I owned Apple and Microsoft. Um, you know, I, I, you could see sort of what was happening. Uh, there is no duty to me as a shareholder that the market has that flows of funds can't, you know, shouldn't be allowed to affect my positions. And in fact, that created opportunities. I mean, Google two days ago was trading, I don't know, 18, I don't know. 50, 40. Yeah. So it created opportunity. We don't have we don't we're not we don't, you know, have a right to have them not be affected. It's uh, it's not pleasant sometimes, but that's OK. It creates opportunities. Yeah. Tim, quick comment. I, I just think that if, if you're in the market and you're off sides and you get affected by fund flows, that that's sucks for you, you know, yeah. but big boy pants, big girl pants, every, everybody's got to understand and there's got to be accountability and regulating around a lot of this when there are clear rules uh, on, on margin requirements and limits and, and, and clearing requirements for people like Robin Hood. I think there's a lot of rules in place. I, I, I hate to think we need more rules. Yeah. And people who are in the market not looking in the mirror and saying I was off sides. I think there's a problem with that. Yep. Coming up, Qualcomm down nearly 8% in the after hours on earnings. The call is underway. We'll bring you all the after hours action. That's next and later, regulating Robinhood. We'll continue this discussion. We'll ask former SEC Chairman Jay Clayton what should be done, if anything. He will join us exclusively when Fast Money returns. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Qualcomm, the chipmaker, moving sharply lower after hours, down by 8%. That conference call is underway. Let's get to Josh Lipton with the details. Josh. So, Melissa, remember heading into this print, Qualcomm had rallied about 30% over the past three months. It was up more than 80% over the past 12 months. But down here in the after hours, you saw them beat on the bottom line, but revenue did come in slightly below expectations. For Q2, they're looking for between a buck 55 and a buck 75. That's above. And they're looking on the top line for between 7.2 and 8 billion. Unclear if that's comparable to the analyst forecast. But digging into the segments, QCT, so the chipset 
chipset business is 6.53 billion. QTL, the licensing business, that's 1.66 billion. CEO Steve Mollenkopf on the call, of course, he's stepping down, but on the call here, he's saying that adoption of 5G driving a multi-year transition, playing at Qualcomm strengths. Qualcomm has a strong pipeline, he says. The licensing business is unmatched. Qualcomm's outlook would have been even stronger, he says, but the company is supply constrained here. Other executives uh, chime in saying, yes, demand is outpacing their supply. Of course, we heard this from other chip names as well. Because of the strong recovery in certain end markets, the work from home trend, execs did say they thought things could normalize in the second half of the year. I also check in, though, with Mike Walkley over Ken Accord Genuity. He covers the name. He said this was a solid print, but not what the market expected, given Apple's recent strong results. Remember, Apple's still an important customer here. The market expected a bigger beat, Mike says, than what we saw. Qualcomm didn't deliver. The QTL, so that licensing business, weaker than expected, Mike saying, likely pointing to softer sales outside of Apple, so meaning those Android phones. On a positive note, Mike did say guidance was better than consensus, strong, strong those 5G trends. He knows the RF business, so radio frequency chips exceeding one billion for the first time in a quarter, but clearly not providing much comfort, at least here in the after hours. Back to you, Melissa. Josh, thanks, Josh Lipton. So, Dan, was it all context, the run up going into the quarter? I think a lot of it. I think if you look at other mega cap tech earnings, you look at how well most of them have done. I'll just make one point here. And I've been saying this on Fast Money for years. If there was ever a time for Qualcomm, which is fabulous, to merge with Intel, both have new CEOs. They could take out a ton of costs. They could be a $100 billion revenue year um, company, $400 billion market cap. Take out. I, I mean, to me, it seems like such a no brainer. Um, especially given Intel's transition and some of the issues that they're having and Intel's losing uh, Apple. And we know that obviously, like Josh just said, Qualcomm uh, has Apple as a big customer still. That's interesting, although new CEOs tend to like their new jobs and not want to give up their new jobs by selling the company that they now had. Um, Guy, I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on the quarter. I like the fact, I mean, Dan Nathan mergers and acquisition. That's fantastic. That was free advice, right? I mean, that's just right out there. Free advice. Yeah. And you know they're both listening, so when this happens in a month from now, they'll pretend they did it on their own. It's all Dan. I thought it was a fine quarter. I mean, listen, the revenue miss upsets people, but you just start to look at the numbers. I mean, in terms of valuation, at $150, Qualcomm's trading about 18 and a half times next year's numbers. That's not rich in this environment. It's not rich in the chip space, and it's certainly not rich compared to the broader S&P 500. So I think you buy it here. I understand people get caught up, all oh, revenue miss. EPS in line. They weren't thrilled with the guide, but you're still talking about a company with 35% operating margins. I think it was a fine quarter. I think you buy the weakness. All right. Coming up, Robinhood regulation. Wall Street's former top regulator weighs in. Jay Clayton will join us next. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success from before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back to Fast Money. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen wants answers regarding the Reddit rebellion. She's calling a meeting of top financial regulators this week, as early as tomorrow potentially, to discuss the market volatility driven by retail trading and shares of GameStop, uh, AMC, and as well as the metal silver. Former SEC Chairman Jay Clayton joins us now on the Fast Line. Jay, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Melissa. Certainly there are so many topics that could be discussed, but in your view, what is ripe for regulation? Well, let me say that you let you led into this with uh, 
uh, Janet, who's a experienced pro here, uh, convening a meeting, uh, and whether it's a meeting or she does it bilaterally with the CFTC, the SEC, the Fed, uh, th- this is the right thing to do. And um, she's experienced at these things. Um, I think Karen used a, a very good word, ripple effects. Uh, top of mind uh, for those folks will be, okay, we had a situation here um, where we departed from fundamentals. Uh, collateral was required. Um, there was questions around liquidity. Is is this something where the ripple effects um, require ongoing and greater attention and possibly regulation? And how do you find that out? You get you get the people around the table who handle these markets, the funding markets, the commodities markets, the securities markets, and you say, okay, what happened? Um, and you know, look, Janet's a pro, and that's what she's doing. So it seems like ripple effects, there are two sort of obvious ripples out there, and that is hedge funds that are over leveraged. Um, they were over uh, short this this particular position, given their portfolio size. Uh, and then there's also the clearinghouses, which sort of overnight told Robinhood that they needed three billion dollars um, worth of collateral. Is, is that are those the two biggest ripples that you take a look at or are there others that we're not thinking of? Well, I think, I think you're right. You have a situation where um, there was the, the opportunity, um, you can use a word uh, like the kindling, uh, for us to depart from fundamentals and have a real technical gap out um, with large short interest, uh, you know, what you would say is uh, you know, low, low relative trading, um, uh, people overextended, and then, and then a huge momentum from a new source of flows. So you know, I think that's sort of the postmortem we know today. There'll be more digging into it. Sure. And then what did that result? What did that result in? Well, it resulted in uh, something that's happened before. It happened in, in March uh, of this year in the fixed income markets. It's happened in the past where you know the clearing um, the houses, which are, are really nodes in our system that we can't have afford to fail. You know, we we over collateralize those, and they have variation margin, and they called on it. And you know, and that's the that's the you know, thing that happens in these types of situations, but we have to look at all of that together. So, yes, those are those are two things um, that need to be looked at. Also, information around short interest is something to be looked at here. I mean, you you see estimates of of short interest that uh, vary widely, um, and then as um, you know, as Bob pointed out at the top of the hour, I got to tune in and see him. You know, we'll also look about whether there was any um, inappropriate or unlawful behavior here. So. That's sort of the the array of things that will be top of mind for the regulators. Also in the array of things, Jay, I'm wondering is is if there need to be guardrails on these types of investors. Can you foresee that happening or is that just too difficult a a thing to put guardrails on? I mean, shouldn't people have the right to lose money if they want to lose money, make money? I mean, whatever, whatever you want to call it, put their own capital at risk. Look, I, th- I think what we have to be careful of here are, are blunt uh, guardrails or, or very blunt regulation. This, the, our, our markets are, are somewhat nuanced. Well, one of the things that has always troubled me around the, the retail investor is, is leverage. And whether that's leverage on margin or leverage through options, uh, you know, that, is a, that is a concept where the consequences of it uh, are difficult to understand un- until you've been educated and have experience. So you know, should we have guardrails around those types of things? 
I'm a believer in that, and I believe those guardrails should be examined as um, we have more and more retail investors, more new retail investors coming into our marketplace. I also think more and more new retail investors, emphasis on investors, not traders, coming into the marketplace is a very good thing. It's Karen. Thanks for coming on with us today. Let me ask you from a different side. I've been quite surprised that we have not heard anything from GameStop. And so can you tell me what is their duty? Do they have one to say anything? I don't know if they're trying to, you know, if they would want to issue shares here. What do you make of that? Well, Karen, GameStop is, is the issuer, and they have their information, their information about their operations, their information about um, their prospects, uh, what their own liquidity situation looks like. And, you know, it, that is the information that they, they know best, and they communicate to the marketplace. I don't know that they're in any better position to communicate about trading um, than the professionals in the marketplace. Now, where those two meet, um, is if GameStop were to want to raise capital. And they would want to be sure that raising capital, uh, they could uh, disclose where they stand um, in a way that uh, investors who are buying directly from GameStop um, have all of the, the material information uh, to make that decision. And you know, this varies from company to company, but as companies' stock price runs up, uh, look, it's natural to take advantage of uh, a good stock price, if you're uh, disclosing all information, to raise capital. Hey, Jay. So while you were the chairman of the SEC back in 2017, there was a huge retail frenzy, obviously, in crypto, predominantly in Bitcoin. And the on-ramp for retail was a very slick iPhone trading app called Coinbase. What, what, what do you take away from that experience? Obviously, we saw a crash in the underlying crypto markets. Um, now, obviously, we've since made new highs. But are there, any, um, are there any lessons to be learned about what you saw back in 2017 with crypto? Look, I, I want to separate uh, investing in equities versus in, investing in cryptocurrencies. Different from a fundamental perspective, and let's just let's just establish that. But in terms of access to the marketplace and technology, uh, it is a it is, in my view, a, a fool's errand to try and uh, stat or um, keep technological advancements from taking place. What you need to do is look at the technological advancements and say, you know, how do we need to modernize our regulation so that the same principles that drove regulation when we had males um, are now um, f fully implemented in the regulations when we have digital and instant access. So uh, the principles are the same, but we need to we need to look at whether um, instant access on a phone and the like we're still applying those same principles in the way that we did um, when we wrote the regulations during the era of the mails and uh, ticker tapes. Uh, Jay, last question for you. You made the the clear distinction that new investors are welcome to this market, not traders. Why make that distinction? What what makes a difference? Shouldn't anybody in the market be welcome, whether they want to trade on a minute to minute? you know, day-to-day -day basis or year-by-year -year basis or decade-by-decade -decade basis? Should Absolutely. regulators distinguish no, the no, two groups? Yeah, yeah. No, Melissa, that you, make a, you, make a, you make an excellent point. What, what I, what I want to say to individuals who are new to this is that investing over the long term is, is a much less risky proposition than coming in and trying to make short-term trading profits. Okay, got it. Jay, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Melissa. Jay Clayton, former chairman of the SEC. 
Um, Guy, your take? Well, brilliant man, and when he was there, 50% of this panel was from the University of Pennsylvania, so that troubles me a bit. But you know, he said something that I found really interesting. He was saying the decoupling from fundamentals, specifically about GameStop, but that, that horse left the barn years ago in terms of the decoupling of fundamentals. We see it all over the place. Um, and if you really want to get to the root cause of much of this stuff, it's the fact that, again, um, Fed balance sheets doubled in the last six months. I mean, all those things, the unintended consequences mm-hmm. of free money are manifesting themselves in so many different ways. And just my opinion, this happens to be one of them as well. Yeah. And by the way, fundamentals are also in the eye of the beholder. That's why it's not <clears throat> a, si- a hard science. <laughs> it's all about how you perceive it. And so fundamentals, momentum, it's about perception and where you place value yourself. Anyway, coming up. Ford speeding higher this year, so are there clear roads into earnings. That trade is next. Coming up, we're gearing up for Ford earnings. They report tomorrow after the bell. Options traders are betting shares will accelerate. We'll bring you the trade when Fast Money returns. Welcome back. Ford is on deck to report earnings after the bell tomorrow. The stock is ripping through the beginning of 2021, and Mike spotted some interesting options activity that could point to even bigger gains ahead. Mike Coe, what'd you see? Yeah, so Ford typically has moved about 5.75% over the last eight reported quarters. Right now, the options market is implying a slightly larger move of about 8% higher or lower by the end of the week after they report but it's, most options traders seem to be betting that it's going to be to the upside because we saw calls outpace puts by more than five to one. Mo, the most active options were the 11 and a half strike calls that expire at the end of this week. About 25,000 of those were trading for just under 30 cents. Buyers of those calls are obviously betting that Ford can rally through that at 11 and a half dollar strike price by the end of the week and then some to see some profits. And of course, there has been a lot of good news coming out of Ford, including the new Bronco, the updated F-150, the best-selling vehicle in America, and of course, a lot of news on the EV front. I think a lot of those options traders are speculating bullishly on that. Yeah, a lot of re-rating going on in the auto industry thanks to uh, EVs and the valuations over there. Karen, where do you stand uh, in this space? And GM, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, still long GM. I mean, we saw that little news today about uh, potentially some uh, shutdowns because of the ship, the chip shortage. But I think it'll be a blip. It's still, I think, relatively inexpensive, certainly compared to everything else in the EV space. I like what Mary Barr is doing to materially turn around the business. All right. Mike Coe, thank you for that. We'll see you Friday. That's uh, when Options Action, the full show airs, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, a mega deal in the pot space, as some traders seeing green today. Our cannabis king is here, of course. He's going to get in the weeds. Couldn't resist. On this one next, much more fast straight ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. GW Pharma flying high on $7 billion acquisition by Jazz Pharma. The deal gives Jazz a new cannabis epilepsy treatment, Epidiolex. Tim Seymour is in the space, of course. He's long a number of names, including GW Pharma. For all of Tim's disclosures, go to fast.cnbc.com. But, Tim, what happens? Is, is uh, Jazz now a pot stock? Well, it, first of all, their, their investment in cannabinoid science is, is very important, I think, for the entire industry. Uh, Epidiolex, which is the trademark drug for GW Pharma, uh, treats epilepsy. Uh, there's phase three spasticity uh, dynamics at, at work through the FDA. Uh, very exciting for GW Pharma, 
which I think for many people in the industry has been one of these companies that could re-rate outside of the industry and at times really has. Um, I think for cannabis investors, this is uh, another important sign that strategics are coming. So if you'll remember in 1.0, part of just the, the frenzy in cannabis were these strategic acquirers. This is the first kind of real foray of a strategic, and I, I realize it's on the pharma side, but I think it sends a message. Cannabis markets over the last three days have been kind of in a frenzy as well, also around the Chuck Schumer comments uh, mm -hmm. about a faster track on federal. So um, it, look, GW Pharma is one of the largest positions in my ETF. It's an exciting day. I actually think the stock still could trade a bit higher here. All right. Um, we got some breaking news. Let's get straight to Phil LeBeau for that. Phil. Melissa, take a look at shares of Apple. And why are you looking at Apple? We have confirmed from multiple sources that Apple is in discussions with Hyundai Kia to build an Apple car, if you will. It'll be a car that will be designed and developed by Apple. It will be built potentially at the Kia plant in West Point, Georgia. That's about 90 miles southwest of Atlanta. They have some available capacity there. And according to our sources, Apple and Hyundai Kia are close to finalizing an agreement that would have that car built by Hyundai Kia here in North America. We have reached out to spokespersons for both Apple as well as Hyundai Kia. Both of them declined to comment on this report, but we have it from multiple authorities that this train is going down the track, Melissa, that Apple will be building an Apple car tentatively scheduled for production to start in 2024. But all of the sources that we've talked with have said, look, this could get pushed back to 2025. Nothing is written in stone in terms of it's actually going to be rolling out at that time. But it will be an autonomous electric vehicle. The focus on that last mile, which is so critical, whether it's for robo-taxis or package delivery firms, and at least initially, that's going to be the focus of this vehicle. Melissa, back to you. Phil, remind me, is Hyundai Kia the initial company that was reported and then the deal was allegedly scrapped because they had gone to the press about it, and et cetera, et cetera? Yep. Okay. Yes. Back but, on but, but I should also point out, huh? Melissa, almost everybody that I've talked with on this who is familiar with these discussions has said, don't be surprised if Apple is also in talks or has had talks with other automakers. Sure. This is not an exclusive in terms of, hey, this is the only company that we're going to work with. And also, everybody says the same thing is, we've seen this kind of reporting in the past with, with Apple, and then nothing happens. So at yeah. this point, nothing has been finalized, but our sources indicate that they do plan on building an Apple car here in the U.S. and that they are targeting uh, that Kia plant in West Point, Georgia. Okay. Phil, thank you so much. Uh, Phil LeBeau with the, with the latest news on Apple. Again, autonomous EV targeted for 2024. Um, Apple stock is up by 2% in the after-hour session. Karen, I go to you first as a shareholder. Do you like hearing this news, or is this just a stretch? Yeah, I think it might be a stretch, and I can't help but think, all right, this isn't going to happen for a couple of years, but we're going to see gigantic expenses in the meantime. So I guess if the street can look through that, okay, but... I don't know. I sort of, I'm not thrilled with it, but they clearly don't care what I think as a shareholder. <laughs> um, and, and just to, you know, it's autonomous. It's not the kind of car that is, you know, going to go head to head with the Tesla that's on the market um, right now. And by outsourcing the manufacturing, you would think that they would reduce a lot of the costs. And it's all, it's, it's software for Apple and design. But Dan, what, what's your take? 
Love it. I mean, it's a B2C thing. They don't even have to compete with Tesla right now. They just have to make a really good product to kind of popularize this thing. So for them, the total addressable market for this is so much bigger than smartphones, especially when we're starting to see smartphone growth plateau. So I love the idea. And they just raise money, 40-year paper, 50-year paper. Have at it. Go figure out what that next huge market is. So to me, I think it's a great uh, next leg for this story. I mean, talk about ecosystem, right? You're at home. You're using all sorts of Apple devices you go into your car it's an apple device it knows exactly where you're going because you already searched on your i mean i don't know guy sounds like a whole new world yeah very jetson like i'm sure people are thrilled by it clearly it's not me i mean my question to apple would be does that mean when the car needs a software update it's basically going to shut down you're going to force me to buy a new one like you do with your phones because that seems to be the game plan in terms of these suckers so good for you yeah and hopefully the battery will uh will last a long time All right. So, again, that news just crossing moments ago. Phil Lebeau confirming from multiple sources that Apple is looking into manufacturing a car with uh, with Hyundai Kia targeting 2024 for an autonomous EV. Interesting news with the stock higher after hours. Final trade time. Tim Seymour. Yeah, I've talked about GW Pharma. Again, I think this is a deal that gets done. I think there's more value in the stock. Karen. Yes, Walgreens Boots. It's in a little bit from last week when Ross Brewer was announced as new CEO, but I like it. Good value here. Dan Nathan. Yeah, so Monday I was wrong on my Exxon final call to sell it. Bad number, stock acts well. You probably don't want to sell a stock that acts like that. Guy. Action Pack show tonight. I really yeah. enjoyed it. I was a participant and a viewer, by the way, just in case anybody cares. You buy Qualcomm on the weakness, in my opinion, Mel. I hope you're also a viewer. Otherwise, your eyes would have been closed the whole time. Thanks for watching Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.